following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome, one, I think, one of the busiest people in theater <laughs> who is working two jobs simultaneously, Kathleen Chalfont. Hi, Kathy. Hi, John. I'm Howard. I'm very happy to be here. Let me explain that to our audience. You are doing performances on a Tuesday through, I guess, Sunday basis in Dead Man's Cell Phone at Playwrights Horizons. And on Monday nights, your night off, you're doing performances in Vita and Virginia. We'll get to both of those shows. Dead Man's Cell Phone is the play by Sarah Rule. And uh, Vita and Virginia, you star along with Patricia Elliott at the Zipper Factory. Among your other credits in the past, you received the Tony Award nomination for your work in Tony Kushner's Angels in America Millennium Approaches. You also, uh, for your performance in Wit, earned the Drama Desk, the Outer Critic Circle, the Obie, the Drama League, and the Lucia Lortel, and let's not forget for our friends on the West Coast, the Los Angeles Ovation Awards. You also received Obie and Outer Critic Circle Awards for your work in Talking Heads. Other credits include Spalding Gray, Stories Left to Tell, and Butterfly, uh, Racing Demons, She's a Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All for You, and a list so long, we'd be here all day just, just naming your credits. Well, I'm very old, you <laughs> see, so I've been at it for a while now. And, and also very busy, it would seem, doing two shows simultaneously. Let's start with Dead Man's Cell Phone. You play the mother of the dead man of, of the title. His name is Gordon. Yes. And he has had a cell phone which lives on after his death. That's uh, true. Mrs. My, my, his name is Gordon, would have been Gordon Gottlieb mm-hmm. because I'm Mrs. Gottlieb and he dies. This is not giving anything away because it's the first thing that happens in the play. He dies and Jean... Mary Louise Parker is the only other person in the cafe where he dies, and she picks up his cell phone and begins and answers it, and in some way has the notion that as long as she keeps answering Gordon's cell phone, he will be alive. And in the very short time that they knew each other, which was about three minutes, uh, Jean has fallen in love with Gordon, and Gordon we discover is one of those. He's almost a Shavian character. He, you, you know, in Shaw, there's the undeserving poor. Well, Gordon is the sort of person who is loved by many people and has no redeeming features, as we discovered. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting part is that the cell phone keeps ringing, and Jean, the character played by Mary Louise Parker, uh, invents stories about him to tell to the other people, including your character, Mrs. Gottlieb. Yes, because um, she she keeps running into the people in Gordon's family, and and they ask questions as though Jean should know, and Jean is an unlikely fabulist, but she tells wonderful stories about Gordon. An interesting premise that through a cell phone that lives on after its owner's passing, uh, he, in effect, is kept alive in their minds and in their hearts. Yes. Yet completely fictitiously, because he kept alive by a woman who didn't really know him. Right, who's making him up. But it's also it's a wonderful play because it's really it's a play about connection in an obvious way, but it's also a play about love, and it's a wonderfully funny love story, and unexpected love story. Is we shouldn't say any more because there are many surprises in it. Well, we're being very careful. But one of the surprises that I had in in reading up before this conversation was that you took on this part without having read the play. Is that true? That's right. So. 
How do you do that? Why do you do that? That's an enormous risk. Well, I was at there. Everyone involved was compelling. When I was asked to do that, they they, uh, they hadn't yet, I think, offered the part to Mary Louise, though I can't imagine anyone else playing the part. But I was asked by Playwrights Horizons, by Anne Bogart, a, a director whom I've admired for a very long time and known in a general kind of way, but we've never worked together before, and Sarah Rule, whose work... I've known really almost since the beginning of her being produced on the East Coast because my daughter, who's a set designer, designed two of her early plays, one at Princeton and one um, at the Ohio space. But that's still an enormous leap to say, I'm just going to do this, and then I'm going to find out who I play, what I play, how big my part is. I mean, it seems... It seems a complete absence of of vanity or career sense. <laughs> I guess I'm not so good at the career sense part. I wouldn't. I'm fairly vain, I guess. But I get. Well, I don't know. It never occurred to me to say no. So when you had you ever had occasion to open a script before, knowing you were doing it, knowing having no idea what it was? No, I don't. Actually, I don't think I ever have. So this is the equivalent of you picking up the cell phone. What was your reaction when you started finding out where you fit in? I loved the play, and I loved the play so much that I didn't actually much care about, I mean, about Mrs. Gottlieb. She was a wonderful character, but I loved the play. And as it turns out, I've come to be deeply, deeply fond of Mrs. Gottlieb, a difficult woman, I have to say. Politely put, a difficult woman. But but I love playing this character. This has been a wonderful experience, I think, for all of us, because there are at least three very particular sensibilities involved in it. Uh, Sarah's, uh, who writes plays that I guess you could characterize as fairy tales with a a spine of steel. Um, Anne, who has a very particular directorial... um, style and philosophy coming from the city company and ha- and who's written a great deal about the theory of the theater and her m- viewpoints notion and Mary Louise who is um wonderfully particular uh and I'd like to say very 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 intelligent actor um so it it was possible that all these sensibilities wouldn't, in fact, come together. But um, I, I think they have. I hope they have. Well, in interpreting Mrs. Gottlieb, is that based on what you saw on the page when you read the play or working with both the author, Sarah Rule, and with the director, Anne Bogart? Is that also an influence in your interpretation? It's a combination. I think um, this was a very collaborative process, and and. Anne uh, uh, invites collaboration, which is uh, fun when there's also someone in charge. And mm-hmm. in this case, we both those things were going on. I guess I had an idea about Mrs. Gottlieb from the beginning, or at least the same person has continued to appear uh, She's evolved over the with the with the playing of it, but I think the character is essentially the same. And I have to say that since Sarah writes in such a particular and precise way, 
the the character is given in in many ways. Though in interesting, there's a stage direction that says Mrs. Gottlieb is the kind of woman who wears fur indoors. <laughs> well, she's she's sort of she's a patrician, yet she's gone so far beyond caring what anybody. Th- thinks about her. She just says what's on her mind. There yes, seems she's to be... one of those people without much filter. Yeah. And I don't know, there's a way to play it as though it's malicious, but I think it's not malicious in Mrs. Gottlieb's case. She just says exactly what comes into her mind, and she's not immensely sensitive to what's going on around her. And it's ultimately devastatingly funny when you appear you have a, I a hope so. you have you you have a, a, you deliver a eulogy that is 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 a classic but it's okay. interesting you kind of you come on part way into the first act you have this phenomenal scene and you have some other scenes but there are large swaths of the play where you're you're not on right. and and i'm just wondering what do you do in between do you stay are you someone who stays in character do you listen to the rest of the play, or do you just hit your mark when you're told to come back? Well, you always listen to the rest of the play because it's on... I know this from um, from Angels in America because there were l- large parts of Angels in America that I wasn't in, but I was... Ellen McLaughlin, Stephen Spinella, and I... Ellen and Stephen, actually, before I came, were all of us involved with Angels in America for six years. And we want to talk with you about that. And so, and Ellen and I particularly heard the play probably more than anyone else. And the rhythms of the play get into your ear in that way, the music of it, when it's particularly musical, a musical kind of play in its language as Angels in America was and as Dead Man's Cell Phone is. But I arrive not so much hitting my marks as come to play the scene. You know, you prepare. They, they're one of the best lessons about acting is that you prepare for the first line, and then you just jump on and take the ride. Well, when you said it's always on, you made a gesture with your hand indicating, I guess, on a on a speaker system backstage, so yes. you can hear it. Yeah. yeah. So it's literally always on. You're it's always, always hearing. It's always on. It. Yeah. So yeah. then, do you like stay in the character of Mrs. Gottlieb, no. or do you read a book and then come I, back out? <laughs> well, there are lots of things. We're now going through a very exciting political time, so uh-huh. I listen sometimes to the radio uh-huh. to see what's going on. Uh-huh. Um, I read. Um, I prepare. If there's other, you know, if I have an audition or something, I sometimes prepare for that. Uh, talk to other actors in the company. There's but, a huge knitting thing going on because Mary Louise is quite a remarkable knitter, as mm-hmm. is one of our assistant stage managers. I'm not knitting, but. So if you're doing these other activities while the show is going on, is it then hard to get back into Mrs. Gottlieb when you no. come back out and hit your mark? No. <laughs> but the question then, of course, is if you've got a rhythm Tuesday through Sunday, Vita in Virginia, another whole play in your head right. uh, that you only get to do once a week. Yes. Is there, I mean, certainly we hear of actors who may film something during the day and do a play at night. It's certainly not unheard of. 
but to have have two plays going at once is is pretty interesting and i'm wondering how you're finding the the bouncing back and forth between them and before you answer we should just say that virginia is virginia wolf yes that is your character yes okay. i'm playing virginia wolf in okay. vita in virginia and patricia elliott the astonishing patricia elliott is playing vita sackville west and this is very much um Patricia has been the moving force behind getting getting this on. Um, and I have to say we're very pleased that people seem to like it because it was an unlikely thing to do, to do Vita in Virginia um, on a Monday night at the Zipper Theater. But it seems to make people happy. It, and, and to answer your earlier question, it's a very good thing, I think, that... Uh, Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Gottlieb have little or nothing to do with one another. So that they're too, it's really playing two different characters. So that, and the worry always is if you're doing two plays at once, which I've done a couple of times, that somehow one of them bleeds into the other in a way that you don't, you don't uh, want to have happen. In this case, it's, um, it's uh, a great, uh, um, I don't know, relief is that the right way it's a it's like doing another kind of exercise you're working a different set of muscles a to use the uh, exercise yes, uh, to do uh working completely a different set of muscles and because we're uh, Patricia and I are reading the letters of Vita and Virginia it, it's nice because in a way um because we can improvise um each night the more that I do this, and I've been doing it for a long time now, the more it seems to me that the essential element is somehow relaxation. You need to know everything you're doing so that it's backwards and forwards. You know, you need to do all the the technical parts. You need to learn all the words and where you're meant to stand and all that so that you're not in any way distracted by something that the character wouldn't be distracted by. You know, when you're living in life, you're not worried about remembering your lines. And you can always read that on someone's face. So you have to have all that stuff inside you. But once you have it inside you, then it, it's, you prepare for the first moment, and, and you must trust that you can get through to the end. And trust that all the uh, work that you have control over has been done and will carry you through the rest of it. So when you use the word improvise, is that in reference to the dialogue itself, no. lots and letters, or no? The, only that. Only that. Um, beca- first of all, because we're doing it once a week, mm-hmm. and also because we're reading for the most part, um, it's different than having staged uh, staged the play. So there's a, we we we're free to find things uh, in each performance, and it's also a conversation. And also, we, I think, are beginning, we get more and more and more and more, as you always do, even, in, I mean, in a play, too, more and more familiar with the material, and you hear things that you haven't heard before. The Zipper Factory is an intimate space. The first row, you literally have, the audience has its feet right but up against the stage. You know, actually, the first row at Playwrights Horizons is, is closer really? to the stage than the first row at the Zipper. There's a little kind of moat uh-huh. At the zipper, whereas at Playwrights Horizons, people are right on the <laughs> right on the stage. I was surprised at that. Well, I guess the question I was about to ask applies more to Vita in Virginia because that is uh, 
basically a, a reading with the two of you. Uh, how informed are you by the reactions of the audience? Does your performance then change based on the audience? Because you can see their faces, you get their reaction. Very, I think very it. I think it always does. I mean, I don't think that a piece of theater exists truly until the audience is there. And I think that it's a collaboration between the performers and the audience, which is not, I mean, it doesn't mean that you pander necessarily, though sometimes we've been known to pander. (laughs) Everybody would like a laugh. But it is is a, a form of communication. And the collaboration between the audience and the and the performance is the only way to know whether that act of communication has succeeded or not. Um, so that I, I think everyone responds differently um, every night. And it's one of the things that makes it possible to do a play over and over and over again for years and years and years. Because in some subtle way, it is different every night. Because so, someone different is hearing it. Are you finding that you're adjusting your performance based on the audience's reaction? I don't know. I don't know whether that's true. Uh-huh. It's If you do it that consciously, that's usually disastrous. Because what usually happens, what often happens, for instance, for instance, Sunday afternoon audiences are famously quiet. Though also, and more and more so, uh, f- famously uh informed and usually committed theater goers, if you begin to worry that people aren't laughing in places that they've always laughed, and you begin to push, then you lose the entire rhythm of the show. Hmm. And that's not useful. However, if you feel there's a way in which you feel the audience drifting away from you sometimes, and you can... In, intensify the the communicative uh, impulse in a way that brings people back, and there and you can feel when everybody's in there together. And sometimes it's absolutely silent, but it's alive. Mm-hmm. There are moments in Vita and Virginia because there, it's it's quite literary, but it's kind of weirdly and fiercely erotic in some places, and you can feel the erotic energy in the room. And I, I'm, I'm loving that. I didn't expect that. <laughs> I'm just wondering why you wanted to give up your one night off a week to do another play. What drew you to Vita and Virginia? Well, Patricia drew me to Vita and Virginia. Patricia, about three years ago, Elliot, called up and said we'd met doing a benefit for the vineyard, I think. The Vineyard Theater. I'm on the. Mm-hmm. I've been on the board of the Vineyard Theater for a long time. Anyway, we met. We did. I think that's what it was. And we were reading something together, and we had a good time. And we'd met before because uh, Patricia is, you know, a, a longtime cast member of One Life to Live. And I'd done a guest thing on One Life to Live, and we met doing that. And I was a huge admirer of Patricia's work when she worked in the theater, and she for a long time and not by choice worked in the theater. So anyway, so about a year later she called up and said, I'm um, wanting to help out this little theater company and we're going to do a benefit reading of Vita in Virginia. Would you do it with me? So I said, sure. What's not to like, you know? And so we did it and people liked it a lot. And so over the course of the next couple of years, we did it two or three more times, always as a benefit for 
uh, uh, the No Frills Theater Company. And Patricia and the company began to think that it would be nice to try to produce it. But it's not on its face uh, much of a commercial proposition. But I remembered that at Lincoln Center, Alan Alda did the play he did. QED. QED on Monday nights um, because he was otherwise engaged. And I thought maybe we could do that. And it turned out that we... That we could do, that we could manage. You know, there were enough people who were willing to invest what little it took and all like that. Hmm. And Patricia was fierce about doing it. She didn't want to let it go, and it was a huge compliment to me that she decided that she wanted to come back to the theater doing this. Hmm. So we, there was a moment when we thought we'd gotten it together last summer, spring, summer, whatever, and it didn't happen. And so this is the time that it happened, and I couldn't imagine saying no. I mean, it's an enormous... First of all, it's a wonderful part, and it's an enormous compliment to be asked. And you have an affinity for the work of Virginia Woolf because you have your own one-woman show based on some Woolf stories? Yes. How did how did that come to be? Oh well, that was a child of Angels in America. Actually, when I when I was first asked to uh, join the company of Angels in America, which was in nineteen eighty eight eighty eight, the spring would have been the spring of nineteen eighty nine, I guess, or the spring of anyway. We were doing a workshop at the Taper, and I went. Uh, and I was carrying this book of short stories of Virginia Woolf because I had an idea to do a Virginia Woolf piece, but I didn't quite know how to make it happen. So I um, came into the first day of rehearsal and sat down next to Ellen McLaughlin, whom I didn't know. And Ellen said, what's that? And I said, oh, these stories of Virginia Woolf. And I thought, I think maybe I could make a piece out of it. And she said, oh, but I love Virginia Woolf, and my mother teaches Virginia Woolf. And I said, well, you know what I need is a writer, and I guess that would be you. Right? So <laughs> so Ellen uh, did the adaptation, and David S. Bjornsson, who was uh, uh, associated with the production and ended up directing it in San Francisco, Angels in America later, and was an old friend of mine, directed it. And um, so that's how that happened. So there you go. We certainly don't want to over, uh, skip over Angels in America, but let's go back to the early days and how you first got interested in theater. How did you get started and where and I, why? And I think I've never never wanted to do anything else, but I think I thought I, wa- I, think I, thought I wanted to be in the movies. Even when you, when you were a kid? You when know, I was yeah, a kid. Uh-huh. Because I grew up in California uh-huh. in various places. My dad was in the service, so we moved around a lot, and then we settled in... Sacramento. I can do it by school years. I can't remember how old I was. But from the third to the sixth grade, we lived in Sacramento. My parents owned a motel. And my grandmother lived with us. And my grandmother was quite a person. And she used to take me to the movies on Saturday. And she was supposed to take me to the kid movies, but not so much. And so (laughs) we went to, and this would have been in the uh, early, early to middle 50s because I would have been seven in 1952. So I think that's about when we got there. We, we were there 52 to 55 or 56. And so we went to all these movies, including things like Miss Sadie Thompson, with Rita, and I loved them. And I, and I was not an only child, but my only sibling was 14 years older, so I had all the... I was raised as an only child, so I used to act out the movies in 
in the backyard, and I was in all the school plays. I, I just, it's what I always wanted to do. And then we moved to Oakland, California, where my parents ran a huge boarding house. It was like a small hotel. And um, among the many things I learned at the boarding house was to be in the theater because I, there was a community theater in the next town, a town called Alameda. And I, at 15 or something, went to the, was a kind of slave in the community theater. My father would come at midnight and drag me out. And so uh, it's what I always, what I always wanted to do. So, and I did it in there and in high school. I didn't when I was in college. Well, you majored in classical Greek? I did. Which doesn't seem great preparation for theater no. in America. Not so much. <laughs> what, was, what was the thinking in majoring in, in I was. I fell in love, and my boyfriend thought it would be good oh. if I studied Greek. So. Okay. <laughs> That's a good reason. So I did. I did. At 17, <laughs> what did I know? So I studied, I studied Greek, and I got a degree in Greek and was on my way to graduate school. And by then, I'd met another boyfriend, the one I have now, my, husband, my, my now husband. And we went to Mexico. In at Christmas vacation of 1965, which was kind of advanced for that, but we did. Mm-hmm. We went to Mexico, we were coming back, and I was supposed to start graduate school in the middle of what would have been my senior year. And I said, I, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to teach Greek to prep school boys. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, out of the blue, because I hadn't thought about it for three and a half years. Well, I always wanted to be in the theater. And he said, why don't you do that? So I dropped out of graduate school and got a job and started, went to an acting school. I didn't do what I should have done, which is, of course, go to graduate school in the theater. <laughs> but I never, never occurred to me. I didn't think I was, ser- you know, that I was ever good enough or anything like that. So I studied. And then we soon after that got married and we went to live in Europe and and uh, I, we sort of landed in New York in 1973 when I was 28. Hmm. And we've been here ever since. And in that, fairly quickly in that period, I saw that you actually worked at Playwrights Horizons in their very first season. As You were an assistant to Bob Moss, the artistic well, director? Well, I actually or worked in... manager, or...? I was, my, I was the staff. You were the staff. I was the staff of... And in a couple of the plays. But I'd been in two plays at the earlier incarnation of Playwrights Horizons at the Clark Center. Two uh, uh, plays earlier. And so uh, when they sold the Clark Center, Bob still had a grant for Playwrights Horizons. Bob Moss had a grant for Playwrights Horizons and nowhere to do it. And the Parks Department... Uh, helped him get a lease on what was then fairly terrifying uh, theater. It, it was not where Playwrights Horizons is now. It was uh, the, our offices were in what in a, above what was then the Nathorn Theater. Underneath us was the JDL, the Jewish Defense League uh, offices. So there were armed people of various kinds Agreed. in the street on Forty Second <laughs> Street all the time. This was in 1975. What is now Playwrights Horizons was a functioning porno house. And we were in the little theater next door, and we were supposed to be renovating it. So I came. I was having a difficult time. And so I came and asked Bob if I could help 
you know, with the construction. And he said, sure. And I nearly killed myself and two or three other people by almost pulling a huge metal radiator down on all of us. And so he said, um, can you type or anything? Why don't you come to the office? <laughs> so you became the staff? I was the staff. I was the, the New York staff. There uh-huh. were two prongs of Playwrights Horizons at that time. There was the New York 42nd Street prong, and then there was the Queens Theater in the park. And Huh. That then, had then early on in that area plays like uh, in that era rather plays like Cowboy Pictures, Dance with Me, Mississippi Moonshine, The Coroner's Park. Absolutely, you were listed as a performer in all those. How did you I go from was. staff to being on well, stage? Well, now it was uh, Bob always knew I was going to leave. Uh-huh. I was an actor, uh-huh. so and in Cowboy Pictures, I got my first review in a New York paper in New York that I remember, and it had all the elements of the perfect review in New York. It was written by Michael Feingold, who is now a friend of mine. But the review said, Kathleen Chalfant, as the ferret-faced neighbor woman, (laughs) transcends the direction. (laughs) So uh, you didn't know quite where you were that day. (laughs) And how did you react to being characterized as ferret-faced? I still haven't got over it, obviously. And you bring it up to Michael all the time. I do, and Michael keeps saying, Kathy, it wasn't about you. It was the character. (laughs) Kind of a left-handed compliment, I guess. You yes. Played it well. Yeah. And, and, and the other, oh, Mississippi Moonshine. Golly, I forgot. But that, we had a baby at that time. We, our son was five, and our daughter was a year old. And my husband, Henry, brought our daughter to see Mississippi Moonshine in the back, and she did that thing that babies do. Mom! And how did mom react? I think I probably blushed, but I was wearing a mob cap or a sunbonnet or something, so you couldn't see. We're mentioning plays that people haven't heard, but but come uh, the early 80s, you understudied Elizabeth Franz in what was a big hit for Playwrights Horizons. And before that, I was in in the original company of Jules Pfeiffer's Hold Me. Uh Aha. So that was my first, I guess success. So so it began. But you it's sort of fascinating as as we look over these articles and lists of shows. I mean, you were all over. You were doing off-Broadway shows, you were doing regional theater. I mean, what were the highlights in those years for you? Well, there were uh, there were remarkable highlights all the way around cuz you know, all actors always think they're they're not ever working. And in fact, of course, I was, was working, but I didn't, in an odd way, notice. Uh, but it was wonderful to be part of all possible kinds of theater in New York, except uh, for the commercial theater, for the most part. But I, K. Michael Patton, who is now a, re, a distinguished um, acting teacher in New York, was then the casting director at the American Place, and she and I were friends, and I'd studied with Wynne Handman, so I was associated with the American Place, and that was a wonderful experience because I met remarkable playwrights there. We got to do um, Jules Pfeiffer's Hold Me, which was another long process. It was about... I guess three years. My, I was involved with it for three years, mm-hmm. from its beginnings in New York through its run at uh, the West Side Arts, and then we went on tour to Los Angeles um, and Philadelphia. I left it in Philadelphia. So that was very important. I worked um, down 
worked I worked downtown. I was in a play with uh, Harvey Firestein and Jane Haynes, in which Harvey played my mom, <laughs> and I played his son. Interesting. Oh, it was a wonderful play. <laughs> what, what, was, what was the play? The play was a Megan Terry play called Pro Game. And Jane Haynes and I were brothers. And I w- was the gum-chewing, football-playing younger brother. <laughs> and Harvey taught me about being upstage. Because in this play, I had a monologue, which was mildly amusing. But one day I was doing the monologue, and people were just dying. And I thought, ooh, that's pretty funny. But I had occasion to look behind me to see Harvey mugging in a way, in his own fabulous and irresistible (laughs) way. I could have been doing anything. It didn't matter. (laughs) And it was wonderful, too. That was a thing I met. I I knew Harvey. It was was wonderful to watch uh, what happened to, what's happened to Harvey, for instance, because he was then this astoundingly gifted uh, not only performer but writer who made his own life in the theater, and I was lucky enough. To, I got I got on the the sort of end of the great experimental theater movement in New York that went through the through the sixties and into the early seventies, and I was in a play of Ron Tavell's. Uh, Ronald Tavell's and uh, his brother Harvey. So these were icons hmm. of that theater. Directed the play with uh, Jane Haynes and Harvey Firestein. So it was a very exciting time to be in New York and to watch the growth of the of the institutional theaters that are now big institutions. I was in on the beginning of Playwrights Horizons, and one of the first plays that I ever did in New York was at the Manhattan Theater Club at the very beginning of the Manhattan Theater Club. Back when they were over on East 73rd Street. Yeah. Hmm. And I did a wonderful production of The Faith Healer in about the third, I think the third season of The Vineyard when they were in that little teeny, teeny theater on 28th Street. Hmm. I've been really lucky. So (laughs) you're doing all of this work. you as you say, with wonderful people constantly working off-Broadway. How did Angels in America come to pass for you? Well, we used to live on the Upper West Side. And one day I was walking down the street and ran into Tony Kushner, whom I knew from the New York Theater Workshop because I'd done a a play called, a Kreutz play called Farmyard. But we didn't know each other terribly well. I ran into Tony, and I didn't recognize him. And But he recognized me and said, Oh, you know, I'm writing this play, and I've written this part for you, and see you, see you soon. I was very flattered, but I didn't know, you know. And in October of that year, which was 1988, was the Dukakis, the year of the Dukakis, I got a call, and I was in a play. I was in a Larry Kramer play called "Just Say No," which was the. the it was clear that we were going to lose the election, and that the Democrats were going to lose. Are the you election. correlating the play with? with no, the, no. What, it was a place where people who knew that we were doomed came to buck themselves up. So we were having a really good time with this outrageous play of Larry's, and. Uh, 
uh, and I was asked to do this reading of this new play of Tony Kushner's at uh, uh, the New York Theater Workshop, and I was late to it. And I'm not usually late, but I was late, and I was handed this whole b- bunch of things, and Tony said, so, okay, you're reading the rabbi, the doctor, the Mormon mother, and Ethel Rosenberg. But there wasn't any time, and I, and of course the rabbi opens the play, and out of my California waspy mouth came the Rebbe. I mean, he came, he was there, he was always there. And it was it was uh, weird because he was there, the Rebbe, always, always, always. And I was excited about it. And we knew then in that room for however many hours we were reading that this was some extraordinary thing. And some of the scenes were, it was Millennium Approaches, and so some of the scenes didn't change. The doctor scene with Roy, for instance, didn't change. And so then a few months later, there was another reading, and I said, so, oh, Tony, do I get to read the rabbi? And he said, that's the part. So that was it. And then, So he'd always imagined you as a rabbi. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, tr- no, the truth is that the play was written for a company in San Francisco, Actually, was written for a company in San Francisco that had a lot more women than men in it, and that's why there was the uh, gender blind casting, not for any thematic reason. Hmm. Uh, and there was an older woman in the company who most of well, most of the people were younger, and he'd written this play with hundreds of men and hardly any women in it. You know. Had you ever played a character calling for that sort of a, a dialect? Uh, no, but I discovered a few years later where Mr. Ke- where the Rebbe came from, and only <laughs> only the older part of your audience will recognize this. But my husband and I were sitting in the kitchen one day, and they were playing old radio shows, mm-hmm. and they played the Jack Benny show, mm-hmm. and it was Mr. Kitzel, <laughs> and I could have I nearly fell on the floor. But it was. It was Mr. Kitzel. And, of course, when I was a kid, you remember some inside your soul are the things you hear when you were little. And I'd been hearing Mr. Kitzel all my life on Jack Benny one way and another. Well, when you were a kid or maybe a teenager growing up with that uh, huge boarding house that your parents ran, did any of the people you met there influence any of your characterizations later? In other words, did you think of certain people perhaps the rabbi, perhaps other people. Not the rabbi. The we didn't have rabbis. We didn't have any rabbis, but we had everybody, Every it was wor- mostly working class, uh-huh. working class people uh, who worked in places like shipyards and canneries and stuff in East Oakland. Um, and I, I suspect that a lot of my characters come from there, not... Consciously, in a way, but you know, we all have a, a, a cast of people inside our our heads and our memories, and that's another. Sometimes you just need to relax into it. I spend an awful lot of time, as I think many of us do, working too hard at trying to conjure things up. And sometimes, if you just read the words. The person who's the the character who is speaking them comes. Sometimes it's just like that. Hmm, interesting. You speak about conjuring, and certainly, Angels in America 
was conjured out of so many things over such a period of time. Can you talk about the journey? Because you were in Millennium Approaches at the Eureka Theater. You did the show at the Taper. You then came to New York with it. And there were a lot of changes along the way. Can you you tell us about that? There were lots of changes of all kinds. There were... The text was being written always as it was going on, and you know Tony, Tony is a, Tony is it, it's not hyperbolic to say that Tony is a genius, and he writes besides the the matter, the form of it is extraordinary. He writes beautifully, the it, it's wonderful to say, wonderfully funny and rhythmic and intelligent and all like that. So. There would come pages, hundreds of pages, of wonderful writing. And the issue always was to carve the play out of it. And we never knew until we... We did a whole bunch of workshops. We worked on the play fairly regularly from 1988. And there were two streams for a while. There were the the Eureka Company was working on it on the West Coast, and there was a sort of East Coast thing. And then when Oscar Eustace went to the taper, because he had been the person who... He was the artistic director at the Eureka. Yeah, and the kind of moving force behind the writing of the play, then the two streams came together, and we did all the developmental work on the play. That is to say, the American stream. There was a whole British stream going on um, in um, Los Angeles. But we did lots and lots. We did a, a in nineteen ninety. We did a production with a set, which we all called Mister Toad's Wild Ride, at this little uh, sort of annex of the Mark Taper Forum called the John Anson Ford Theater, up under a great cross on the in the Hollywood Hills. Um, we did uh, 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 complete the play. You know, the whole of Millennium Approaches. Uh, with a wonderful guy who's died since then, uh, Richard Frank, playing Roy Cohn. And for quite a while, the majority of the work went into the shaping of Millennium Approaches. And there was always a deadline because there was the world premiere of the play had to be done contractually at the Eureka Theater, which by then existed. Its only asset was the this contract with uh, Tony um, in San Francisco, and so I think I think that's 1991, and we did that, and David S. Bjornsson directed it, and we did a beautifully staged version of Millennium Approaches, and we did what was sometimes a five-hour-long staged reading of Perestroika, which was a, 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 it was a remarkable experience because Perestroika, all its parts existed, but it hadn't, you know, there, there, there were neither time nor resources to do everything that needed to be done because it was a whole other three-hour-long play, but at that stage, a five-hour-long play. The casts were f- fairly fluid. Sometimes it had to do with uh, people who were available. The, the pe- Stephen, um, Ellen, and I were always in it. Um, pretty soon after that, R- Ron Liebman joined up, 
and um, Joe Mantello. And so those were the five of us who came to New York and were presented to um, George. George Wolfe. Uh, George Wolfe. And, you know, it's kind of a big deal to present a director with five out of the eight possible actors. but And I think that in the end that George was interested to do Millennium, but he was really interested to do Perestroika because it hadn't yet, it hadn't ever been quite fully realized. And um, so we, we by, it was clear at some, by the winter that we were going to go to Broadway. The original idea had been to go to the public and then go to Broadway. So we were going to go to Broadway, and so we began rehearsing Millennium Approaches, and once Millennium Approaches was up and open, we then rehearsed Millennium Approaches, or Millennium, uh, I mean, uh, Perestroika during the day. And um, so Perestroika went on, I think, in the fall. Yeah, fall of whatever that year was. We, yeah. It was in. They opened in two different seasons. Right. Yeah. What we should point out, of course, is that Angels in America included two plays, basically, yes. which totaled about seven hours of, yes, of, of they performance. Did. Yes. With uh, Millennium Approaches being the one in Perestroika, as you're talking. Right. And also that Joe Mantello was an actor. He was. He, not not yet the director. Joe Mantello, same right. person, but same acting, person. not yeah. directing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The experience of being in a play that was considered such a landmark in culture, in literature, in politics, in everything. What was that experience, especially because this really was the exception of having been in the company of M. Butterfly. I mean, this was where you really landed on Broadway. It, yes. so the combination of all of that, what was that like for you after after all of these years of toil? It was great, and I wasn't so young either. Well, I've had a wonderful career because I keep thinking I've gotten to wherever it is I'm going to get, you know, and it's pretty nice. And then some other really cool thing happens. Um, to be part of Angels in America is was one of the great experiences of my life in all possible ways, and it's where I really went to school, to the theater, I think, um, not only because uh, of the material, but because of the other actors that were in the company, because of all the directors that we had, because of doing it everywhere from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride to, you know, the Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway with everybody in the world watching. Ellen McLaughlin, who played the angel and who is a, 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 a wonderful writer, quite a remarkable playwright, uh, always said that she was the hood ornament for Broadway because the year that we did uh, Angels in America, it was, you know, every once in a while they decide that it, it, this is the hundredth year of Broadway. Well, that was the hundredth year of Broadway, and they keep dragging Ellen out onto Forty Sixth Street in her wings to take <laughs> to take pictures. It was a very beautiful hood ornament, I must say. Well, it had to be a very exciting time for you because the show was so universally hailed by the critics, oh. by audiences. It became the theater event, really. Of, it, of and it, it was, and I want you to know that every gay Mormon in America came to see that play, and there's a lots of gay Mormons. I want you to know, <laughs> and most of them came backstage to tell me that I was exactly. Exactly like their mothers. I don't know what that said. <laughs> um, yes, it was, and I and I came to understand the power of theater because I still believe that if people are made to think something for seven hours, something quite different from what they normally think, 
they're changed in some way. And you saw it. You saw people uh-huh. people come to understand the world in a different way because that play was a great and transformative work of art. And what effect did it have on you? Did you come to understand things in a different way? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Have you, you haven't reflected on it in the years since? I don't. No, I'm not. I guess I'm not such a reflective person. Am I? I it certainly made me believe even m- more fiercely in um, in the power of art. I almost said the utility of art. But I, I think it, the thing that art does, the, the, the essential nature of of art to the human endeavor is goes far beyond any notions of utility. Uh, so Angels in America had a lot to do with confirming me in that view or perhaps convincing me of it. In so many ways, we're glossing over so many shows in your career, but we really must talk about Wit, which you first appeared in at Long Wharf and again, began a journey with a play. You really have yeah. these two journeys that not every actor has. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk about first taking on the role in Wit in New Haven and then the journey that you took with it? Well, it, it began before New Haven, really. I was doing Henry V in the Park, and Doug Hughes was directing it, and Derek Anson Jones, who became our director, was the assistant director, and Derek and I had no. Derek had just graduated from Yale, though he'd spent before that 15 years uh, at the Folger in Washington. Um, and Derek was small, immensely handsome, extremely youthful looking African American uh, director. Um, so you always thought that Derek was 19. <laughs> so. Um, he was at that time ha- not 19. He had just graduated from the Yale School of Drama, and he was a protege of Doug Hughes's and was his assistant on Henry V. And because we'd known each other at the New York Theater Workshop, um, one day he gave me a play and said, you know, my friend has written this play. I'd love you to read it. And I read the play, um, and for those people who don't know, Wit is a play about a two univer- about a university professor as the central character, and then there's another character who's also a university professor who is the central character's mentor. And so I read the book, and I thought that I, it was a little awkward because I didn't know to whether to say to Derek. So I, I don't know which of these people, you know, because I couldn't imagine that you would have this play, this amazing part, without having some idea of someone to play the central character. And at that point, I didn't know anything about the history of the play. So he said, no, 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 it's Vivian Baring. I'd like you to read it. And and it happened in these peculiar serendipities of life that just at the time I was given the play, my older brother, who was in many ways my mentor and the person, he's the reason that I'm in the theater, I think, actually, because he was the person in my family for whom it wasn't an impossible dream. Anyway, had just been diagnosed with cancer, a cancer uh, from which he died um, something under two years later. He, uh, He was visiting us, and I gave him the play to read 
because I wanted to know whether it was true to his experience. And he came back, and we were with the tears streaming down our face and everything, and he said, if you ever, he said, yes, it's true and all like that, but if you ever have a chance to play this part, you better do it. And I thought, oh, a chill sort of. But then we didn't think there was going to be any chance to play the part, and Derek gave the play to Doug Hughes, who was at that point at the Guthrie, and Doug went off to the Guthrie. And six months later, not even, Doug was chosen to be the artistic director at the Long Wharf Theater, and Doug's part of Doug's deal was that they should open the experimental part of the theater again. They had a second stage the that second had long stage been unused. That had long been unused, that he wasn't interested in, and that he was going to open his first season with this play that had been rejected by every institution in the country except South Coast Rep, which had done a wonderful production of it uh, the year before, um, b- directed by an unknown director, uh, starring a fairly unknown aging actress who was going to be then bald and naked. We should point out, I, I don't think we actually mentioned it, that your character not only is a college professor but is terminally ill yes, with cancer. Yes, he's terminally ill yeah. with ovarian Which cancer. Which is what made it so much more poignant with your own right. brother being stricken right. at about the same right. time. Yeah. So, off we went. You were there, yes? <laughs> I saw all of your incarnations <laughs> of that show. But it, you know, it was... It was hailed in New Haven. It came to New York and first was done at the MCC Theater Mm -hmm. and and then moved to to what we rarely rarely see now, which is a long commercial run off-Broadway. Long, long commercial run off-Broadway. And and I did it for a year, and then I went to Los Angeles and then to London with it. Um, and it was, and in the in t- my brother died between the time we did it at the Long Wharf and the time we did it in New York. There was a, exactly a year between those two events. But if I can ask, your brother passed away, and you've shared that with us. Of course, the talented Derek Anson Jones, you mentioned, passed away as well he during did. this journey. What was it like to go through this play that is both about loss? Of life, but also about transcendence, well, and deal with with these losses in your life. The amazing thing about Derek was my my brother taught. I, I there was a kind of synergy with this play. The play taught me how to look after my brother to some extent in the last year of his life, and he taught me a great deal about how to play the character. Derek turned what is a very, very good play into something more than that. And I continue to believe... Derek uh, had been HIV positive for a very long time, and he didn't tell anyone um, except the people who needed to know his partner and, and all like that, because I think he thought that it was enough to be gay and African American and look 19... Um, you know, you didn't need any more things hanging around your neck, and his disease was very well controlled. He was l- lucky um, f- for a long time. So none of us knew. Derek knew. And Derek fought for the for the transcendent element in the play, so that the quite spectacular uh, last moment 
was Derek's, and he had to fight for it because in the script, if you've read the script, it's it's much more modest what happens to what happens to Vivian. So that he was fighting for his life, Derek, and made this work of art. And I believe that the work of art that was wit is is in great part Derek's making. And he began to get ill uh, after we'd opened and after the, you know, after it was successful. He died actually on um, January 17th of the year that he died, which is his, hmm. was his partner's birthday. Hmm. We only have a few moments, and this is when we always say, well, what are you doing next? But I have to ask, it's already been announced that Tony Kushner is writing you another part in the Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to Scriptures. I know nothing more than the title. I don't know which intelligent homosexual socialist I'm playing. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm there. <laughs> At the moment, I think Tony is buried under Abraham Lincoln. He's writing a screenplay for a, a, for uh, Steven Spielberg about Abraham Lincoln, and it's a, a it's a big subject. <laughs> Well, what we do know is what you're doing currently, which is six times, six days a week, playing Mrs. Gottlieb in Dead Man's Cell Phone at Playwrights Horizons, and on your nights off on Mondays at the Zipper Factory, playing Virginia Woolf in Vita and Virginia. Kathleen, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Thanks. Kathleen. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.